Hi, everybody. It's Dan. And I'm Mike. So welcome back to 15-Minute Film Fanatics. This is we're beginning season six, Mike. Season six. Super exciting. Super exciting. So here we are. Um, we're on movie 100 and something. And the premise of the show, if you've never listened before, is that Mike and I watch movies separately and that we have conversations about them for the first time. So it's natural after you see a movie to want to talk to your friends about it right away. But we decided to make a show out of this. And we have a segment uh, set up where the first segment we talk about the, our overall take. Then we talk about our favorite moment. Then we talk about uh, what we think about the ending or the title. So this week we're doing 1981's Body Heat which was written and directed by Lawrence Kasdan, who wrote uh, The Empire Strikes Back, who wrote um, the first Raiders of the Lost Ark movie. It was a huge, huge movie when it came out in 1981. Um, and it just, something movie I just stumbled across on the Criterion channel. Our general rule is that when one of us picks, the other guy goes first. So I picked this movie, Mike, you go first. What was your overall take on this? Sure, I, I loved this movie. Uh, I can see how it was adapted from film noir. So, you know, the, the big joke of the movie is that it's a it's a redoing uh, a retelling of double indemnity what you lose by doing a movie in color in 1981 with movie making best practices that you lose from classic film noir is obviously a texture um, of the film right so the, the beauty of black and white is that you can play with elements of shadow that's both ambiguity and characters and drastic things in lighting and obviously there's been a much ink spilled over what film noir is supposed to mean and i really liked what this movie did with the heat and the fog and the sweat right away, because that's that's intended, I think, to make up for some of the atmosphere that you lose by shooting in color. Yeah, I mean, um, our viewer, our, our listeners probably know what the pathetic fallacy is, right? Mike, you wanna give everyone a 30 second definition of the pathetic fallacy? The pathetic fallacy is the understanding or lack of understanding that the universe should mirror the emotions of, of human beings. Like for example, that it would rain when a character is sad. Correct, right, and it's you know pathos that that the universe has pathos. So this is the perfect example of the pathetic fallacy, right? I mean, everybody's sweating, everything's on fire, even the French fries are like in hot grease. Um, it's funny that there's no air conditioning in, in Central Florida, or whatever. But the, you know, you got to give a pass on that. And even she says, um, at one point, Maddie says, uh, you know, my temperature runs a couple of degrees higher. It's the engine or something. So everybody is, you know, the title is perfect. Everybody's on fire. Everything is hot, and uh, certainly the characters are hot in other ways. Yeah. The it's supposed to be some kind of unbearable universe. When you, when you watch Double Indemnity, which we've done an episode on, um, the life of its characters seems, seems boring, seems mundane. They have to break out some way. And again, this, this is a way of mirroring that with a, a, a continuity and atmosphere that's, that's inescapable because we, um, char various characters come and go. They travel to Miami. They travel out of country. They travel to Europe. We never leave. The universe is is very small. It's very contained, and it's inescapable unless you find some way to punch through. Right, and it's not even going to be the money. He says he's going to die because we want him dead. Um, let's talk about Double Indemnity though a little more because we both love that movie so much. So, so what did you notice? What what was I made a little list here? But what did you think was like Double Indemnity or unlike Double Indemnity? Uh, obviously, the chemistry was very much like Double Indemnity, with the exception that William Hurt and Kathleen Turner, good as they are, are not funny. The same way that you know Fred McMurray is. Sure. Fred McMurray is very obviously funny. He's very obviously charming. You lose a lot. Um, the Edward G. Robinson character here is Ted Danson. Um, you know, which or the uh, cop. I kept going back between him and the cop. Yeah. Yeah, it's and the the reason that it's it's split, I guess, is because it would be very difficult if they were the same character for the for the cop to be in on it. But you lose a little bit in the dilution. You know, in yeah. it being a group of three friends rather than rather than a, a partnership uh, at work. Um, 
you know, what it gained, though, is that this movie is, is slightly slicker in its construction because there's a lot of things dropped in its construction, which an intelligent viewer is meant to, to see come back later. Um, and then and viewers that are kind of riding the crest of the wave, they're just a, a split second ahead of the movie, uh, start to understand these revelations for their, themselves. And that's how the movie works. That's why you suppose you, you see Maddie's uh, twin who and William Hurt even mistakes one for the other. You know, that's <laughs> he why sure you, does. <laughs> you know, the the, the 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 reason that this opens in a small kind of crappy courtroom with the grumpy judge at, you find out why the, why right. the judge is grumpy later, right? There's a lot of implied information that's sitting in the background here. And that's really what you lose with a lack of first person narration, right? The gimmick in, in double indemnity, you have a much closer relationship with the audience between Fred McMurray and the audience, because he's talking, you know, he's talking into the dictaphone, but he's talking to the audience. Yeah. What, and, and that's what's lost here. Yeah, it's funny you said slick because I'm circling the word I actually wrote though in the word slick because it reminded me this movie is slick in the way that like the crime novels of like you ever read Charles Williford or or, or Donald Westlake or some or early Elmore Leonard. It's very early Elmore Leonard. It's slick in that kind of way. You know, go back to Double Indemnity. I love what you said about how um how uh, they're humorless in in a way that Fred McMurray is. You know, I thought even in the plot, the little girl when the little girl catches them outside, you know, she's like the guy on the train. Exactly. <laughs> and the, and the scene where he walks up to the little girl, that's like that. Um, I love when she smacks his face um, in the bar. That's like, I, you know, that reminds you that. And later on, you find out she's way ahead of him. And I remember when we did Double Indemnity, you were talking about how um, the fact that he figures out it's got to be on a train. You're like, whoa, he's way, way ahead of her. And of course, she was way, way ahead of William Hurt in this one. Um, I also thought it was like Double Indemnity in a, in a moment where just as you get sucked into the murder plot in Billy Wilder's movie, in this movie, uh, the, my reaction was this. When he gets the phone call about the will and they say there's a problem with the will and you're kind of like confused like him what's going on and you get there you want to scream at her why did you try to change the will what and like well then who whose side are you on like are you on his side like you get you get sucked into it and it's like just like in double indemnity like when they go on the train you're like what's going to go wrong for this one i was like when he was preparing the arson and he's planting the body and the bomb you're like okay this is going but something has to go wrong here and in this movie it's the glasses in double indemnity you know, it's it's um how he fell off the train and things like that. But it, 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 good. Yeah, there's there's a lot of uh, interesting ambiguity in this film that there's not really in Double Indemnity. So in Body Heat, of he says what you said, which is um let's we're gonna kill him because we want him dead, and that's the only reason. He is odious though, and the movie oh. goes out of its way to make him to make him appear odious. You yes. know, whereas I think in Double Indemnity, um the guy is just kind of a schmuck, and that's yeah. that's that's different than being odious. Yeah, he can't. Once Fred McMurray sees her ankle bracelet, he's done. He can't help himself. Okay, welcome back. So, in part two, we like to talk about our favorite scenes or scenes that we think are indicative uh, of the themes of the film as a whole. Dan, why don't you go first? Sure. My moment is when um, Kathleen Turner, who, by the way, I, I, the whole time I'm watching this, also, this was her first movie. And it was really? William Hurt. Yeah, and it was William Hurt's second. And I, and I kept thinking, like, what happened to them? Like, Because I, I think they're both terrific in this movie. But my moment is when she gives him his present. Do you remember what she gives him for a gift? She gives him a hat. And and he's kind of trying it on, and he's practicing throwing it on the on the on the the hat rack, kind of like James Bond does in all in all oh seven movies. And that of course made me chuckle because she gives him a prop from every noir movie. Like nobody would wear that hat. First of all, no one no one's wearing hats because it's post 
JFK and men aren't wearing hats now. Um, and certainly he didn't need another thing to make him sweat more like to do in this film, but it's a great noir prop. And I kept thinking of all the noir stuff in this movie, right? Like um, the smoking constantly. How great is it that after he goes jogging, <laughs> he has a pack of cigarettes. Twice in the movie, he starts smoking. He's winded and he starts smoking. There's that great bit with the lawyer's office when they, would anyone mind if I smoke? <laughs> and they all go around and start smoking. Um, they eat at a lunch counter with the sassy waitress. They even order like cherry pie. Like, like it's so funny how many noir time warp things there are in here. Um, the music, the, the the band, the big band is playing. When they started playing that big band scene in the beginning when he first meets her at the pavilion, I'm like, what song is that? And the song is that old feeling. Well, the beauty of the anachronism is that Turner knows that she's in a noir movie. Do you remember what yeah. he says when he gets the hat? No. He says, I want to see it. And she rolls up the window. And so he's superimposed over her face. She's made him in her own image. And because it's so obviously after the fact, she's she's making him into Fred McMurray because she wants that's who she wants to be. And it's very clear who the director of this film is. In fact, that's like she's like showing him the dailies. She's showing him yeah. the rushes <laughs> of the films that they're in that she's making. And that's great because like many other noir um, guys, he thinks he's smarter. I mean, she's the femme fatale, front, you know, cubed, right? And he thinks he's smarter. And and the last noir thing I loved, besides the Venetian blinds, which I think I mentioned already, but all the banter in the first twenty minutes is terrific. Like all of their exchanges in the bar is it's it's got that perfect. What we did out of the past, we talked about how um, the characters communicate in these these one liners and these um, these little aphorisms the way that people in musicals communicate by singing or what they do in the umbrellas of Sheerborg. But I just wrote down a couple funny ones. Like I love that. Like um, when um, she says, uh, uh, she says, you aren't too smart, are you? I like that in a man. He says, what else do you like? Lazy, ugly, horny. I got them all. She says, you don't look lazy. <laughs> like, and, and she says, what are you doing in Pinehaven? He's like, I'm no yokel. I was all the way to Miami once. So he, he, she keeps trying to like get him to talk like Robert Mitchum and he keeps up with her. But then of course, as the movie goes on, he finds out that he's not keeping up with her at all. And, and you know, far, far until he's in jail at the end. Well, I think one of what the- was your moment? The, my moment was when he's with Mickey Rourke listening to Bob Seger uh, and they're putting the bomb together for the first time um, because that uh, whatever garage they're in takes place in another universe. In fact, that garage scene has its own soundtrack. And to me, uh, that he's kind of stepped out of the universe that he's in with Kathleen Turner um, and into a world of, of some kind of actual bond, right? So that the, the problem is if he's going to commit a crime, you have to know somebody who actually knows how to commit crime. Like he he can't go to the library and take out a, a, a book on, <laughs> That's what we would do. you know, take out a book on arson. Right. So he's you've got to know somebody. But how would you know somebody? It's someone somebody that you've done a, a good turn in a past life. And that's when Mickey, Mickey Rourke is the only person who tries to talk him out of it, not yeah. for the sake of a woman, but just like this, this is not something for you to get mixed up in. And, yeah. and that's how he ends up in jail rather than dead at the end of the movie, because of course it's Mickey Rourke who calls him back and says, you know, somebody called me up and said that you wanted another one, you know, do you know anything about that? And if not watch your back because of, and that's how he finds the drawer rigged yeah. to explode. I also, um, by the way, I love the way that the wire looks because um, I was thinking to myself, okay, if you're going to film a wire, it must be really diff like a character is going to look at a wire in the middle of the night and it's 1981. You know, how can you catch the the moonlight on a wire? But it's it's kind of it's candy striped wire yeah. kind of look. It's red and yeah. it's red and white. It looks like cartoon wire. Yep. Um, and uh, th I thought that was a nice touch. It's an it's exact. I exactly thought it's the exact same kind of wire that's attached to Wiley e. Coyote's Acme plunger. That's exactly right. That's what it is.
And I love the Mickey. It's funny. I forgot about the whole Mickey Rourke's thing because what I thought when I watched it was the movie. It's an it's an exaggeration of every guy at some point in his life has either been told or told one of his friends, "Listen, you gotta like, you gotta, you gotta. This chick is no good, man. You got, I'm telling you, man, she's bad news." And it's, it's the same thing that that went on when everyone's 19 or 20 years old, but it's the the stakes are much higher, but it still resonates. Well, that. And it, it's the moment for me that breaks up the film that shows you that um, if you're just in a sultry universe, it's hard to it's easy to understand how you could get sucked into a plot like that if it's just everywhere, but not in the garage. In the garage, it's cool. They're drinking. They're hanging out. Mickey Rourke is doing his. It, it, there's there's some possibility of a safe haven somewhere. And that's what ultimately saves his life as well. Yeah, the garage is like actually back in 1981. But then exactly. he has to leave the garage and go back to 1944. Exactly. It's a it's a it's a different universe of its own. And you could understand how momentum would carry you thus far. But once you're in a different universe, if you choose to go back, it's all decision based after that. I mean, this whole this whole movie um, is kind of like um, if Florida man starred in Macbeth. Welcome back, everybody. So in part three, we'd like to talk about the ending or the title. Um, Mike, my thing about the ending was that uh, I, I don't necessarily think, and this is just this is just being, me being very petty, I didn't think we needed the last shot of her on the beach. Like when he looks at the yearbook, you put it together. I think it's even more haunting when the camera goes up to her face, to Catherine, Kathleen Turner's face on the yearbook. I think that's great. But I do like the idea that she's out there somewhere. Um, not morally, but it's just, it's very satisfying. And if you remember at the end of The Big Lebowski, you know, we're told the dude is out there taking it easy for all of us. And I wonder what she's out there doing for all of us. It could be a lot of things. No, you do. You do need the last scene because she's she's in the yearbook and it, it says, you know, what do you want? And it's to yeah, have travel money to exotic places. Yeah. Have money and uh, be rich and, and live in a yeah. foreign land. But in the foreign land, she's also humorless laying next to somebody. And what he what he says to her in either Spanish or Portuguese or something is it's hot. Yeah. So yeah, she's was, not she's not escaped easy. the heat. You know, oh, okay. she you know what I mean? She's not yeah. she's she's not laughing or smiling and she's the reason she asks him to repeat it and says what is because she's thinking of something else and she's she's obviously either thinking of him or or something else or her next move. She's you know, she thinks that she, getting the things that she wants is going to make her happy uh and nothing's nothing's made her happy. And so that's if the last shot is the yearbook then she wins. But I think that the last shot is is a redefinition of of winning or what winning means. If I mean, maybe if that I'm not sure. I think I assumed it was Brazil, by the way, at the end. Um, but I'm not sure what I could read into her because I'm not sure what I can really read. I, I can't really read her at all. I think if we met her in real life, she would terrify me the way I'd be terrified of seeing, you know, um, a ghost or something. Uh, but I, I think that when she says to him, you know, I do love you despite it all. And she runs in and fakes the, you know, the whole explosion at the end. Part of me is kind of like, well, does she, does she not? Is it kind of like, I'm sorry, this was you, even though she engineered the whole thing from the beginning and knew about his legal mistakes and you find out. But um, I think she's, I think she's very, very hard to read. She's obviously charming when she's up to something. And it, it, it means something, I think, from the filmmaking perspective to show her, uh, to show her out there and distracted and unsmiling with the shades on because she never has the, um, you know, when she has the sunglasses on in the movie, it's always when she's with her husband and she's trying to hide her, hide her yeah. eyes. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> there there's, there's, there's something unsatisfying for her about the, about the ending. She got what she wanted when she's 18 um, or, you know, whenever she was right. in the yearbook, but um, we'll see if she can enjoy it. 
Well, that's funny about the sunglasses because that's another double indemnity thing. When they're in the parking lot, I love that she says, I never wanted you so badly. Well, and she wears like, them in the store too. Yeah. And that's like, that's like the supermarket scene in double indemnity exactly. where like, you know, with their body language and what they're saying are two different things. Um, yeah, I guess. I mean, I just, I just, you know, and again, I, I, I didn't, I didn't see the scene on the beach at the end and say, oh, that was, he ruined the whole thing. I just, I just love that. I just thought the ending with the yearbook was so ghostly and mysterious. And you could just imagine William Hurt, like putting all the pieces together and looking at that yearbook and thinking how much he's been played, which is of course what Frederick Murray feels too. Well, I think his ending is more satisfying because he at least knows who he is at the end. And he knows who he is when he finds out who she is. But the question is, is she still in character at the end? Or what is her character? Even? <laughs> I mean, does, does her character have a bottom? I don't know. Well, thanks for listening, everybody. We hope you've enjoyed our conversation about Body Heat. Um, you can follow us on Twitter at 15IMFilm. You can um, email us at 15MinuteFilm. That's spelled out, the number 15, 15MinuteFilm at gmail.com. Let us know what to watch. We're going to do another great season with a lot of great movies. Please rate us on iTunes or Apple Podcasts, wherever you get your podcasts. We really want to keep building up our audience. Thank you so much. See you next time.